Welcome to Injury Prevention Podcasts. My name is Rod McClure. I'm editor of the BMJ journal Injury Prevention, and each month I chat with a distinguished researcher or practitioner, and together we explore the narrative of their injury prevention careers. My guest today is Professor Richard Metsopoulos, who's co-director of the Burden of Disease Unit, South Africa Medical Research Council. He's a trained epidemiologist, and his research mostly focuses on measuring the health and social burden of violence and injury, and evaluating interventions and policies that target upstream determinants. He's also an honorary professor at the University of Cape Town School of Public Health and Family Medicine. Hello, Richard. Hi, Rod. Lovely to have this opportunity to talk with you. Could you start by telling us where you're working at the moment? Rod, I'm um, working at the South African Medical Research Council. Um, They're the people that are kind enough to pay my salary, but um, I also have a joint post at the University of Cape Town. So I spend probably the majority of my time at the Medical Research Council, but but still a few days a week um, at, at UCT. That is when we're not under lockdown. So your focus of research is on measuring the health and social burden of violence and injury. Tell me a bit about how you got to this particular um, location and topic, because you started off in a completely different field, I understand. Yeah, it's it's been quite circular, in fact. Um, and, I mean, this is part of my work. So the, the difference between the, the MRC and the UCT work, uh, a lot of the more um, prevention and policy-focused work happens at the University of Cape Town. Um, and at the MRC, it's very much quantitative around the uh, measurement of burden of disease. Um, and uh, it was actually my entry point into public health was probably a stats lecture in uh, final year of a business science degree. Um, I, I was very unhappy and, and wasn't wanting to become an industrialist or a capitalist. And I was looking for a way out and I was doing a biostatistics module. Um, and I th- uh, well, like the, the person that one of the people that presented is our former director, Debbie Bradshaw, who's just retired. Um, so I was, I was very interested in that work. And I also got, um, I was also responded to a project that was advertised on the notice board looking for a researcher to develop an injury surveillance system for fatal injuries. And it had the um, sort of alluring. Um, hook of possible remuneration. So that's the project that I chose. And I worked with a forensic pathologist and and developed the start of a a fatal injury surveillance system in Cape Town. And one of the collaborators, again, was Debbie Bradshaw. So um, some of my very earliest work was with this unit. Um, But I moved around from then, um, you know, getting into different aspects of public health, but I found my way back again. You're very much a public health expert now with a PhD in that area. Do you think your initial start uh, gives you advantages in public health that are specific to your underlying discipline that you might not get if you came out, for instance, out of a clinical uh, medical background? Um, Some advantages and disadvantages, but I think it really determines my focus in in a lot of what I do. Um, And interestingly, I work very closely with clinicians. who have skill sets that that I don't 
have and vice versa. So I think it works quite well. And I think that's the thing about public health. It, it draws people from a range of different disciplines. Um, I'm realizing that more and more because I, I do um, student supervision at UCT and I, I lecture in the public health block as well. Um, and it's it's really interesting seeing the di diversity of, of students and where they're coming from and how, how they the, the roots into public health. It's, it's seldom, well, there's always a group of uh, medics or clinicians that, that tack it on and then others that do the modules as part of a registrar, registrar program. But there are many others that are coming in from vastly different disciplines. Um, so I think it helps in some ways. Um, for me, it's really set the tone for the areas that I work in. Well, how about we use that as an invitation to ask you about one of your products and uh, if you can help us understand the distinction you made then between the interesting smaller projects versus the large-scale national interests. Maybe you've got two papers that you could discuss that you might have been involved with which illustrates that. Okay, so I, I think returning back to the injury surveillance theme, um, one of, one of the, the problems with um, that the MRC encountered with their burden of disease estimates was the unreliability of, of mortality data coming from vital registration. Um, and part of that is the, the coding norms that are developed and implemented based on how diseases present um, in, in first world countries, in developed countries. So if you look at gunshot injuries, for example, they're coded as X59, which ends up in an ill-defined injury category, but it's always for unintentional injuries. Now that makes sense in a place like Sweden or perhaps Australia, but it doesn't make sense in South Africa where if you see a, a gunshot injury, invariably it's, it's homicide related because we have such high levels of interpersonal violence. So what happens when um, the national reports are released by the statistical agency, they report exactly what's recorded, but in terms of public health or prevention or even accurate measurement, they often don't tally with, with, with what's happened in terms of death reporting. So in order to correct that, firstly for the burden of disease project, but also to, to get a better handle on, on, on injuries, uh, we did a nationally representative study based on um, cases that we extracted from state mortuaries. So we about uh, it was roughly thirty thousand cases um, from across the country, which was approximately half of the total, um, which allowed us to very accurately um, show the, the the mortality profile um, for the country. So that was written up in it was for two thousand and nine. I think it was published in the WHO bulletin only in twenty fifteen. The reason for that delay is that we have to wait for the um, the inquests and the um, the, the post-mortem reports to be completed firstly. Then there's a long period of, of field work and then there's analysis and write-up. So it's rather a long process. And we're repeating that one currently for 2017 data. Um, and uh, I expect we're gonna have results sometime this year. The, the, um, the, the technical report, but added to that now is a new leg where we investigating homicides specifically by following those cases up at police stations um, to find out more about the victim perpetrator dynamics and, and details around the event. 
So that both those studies are examples of what the type of work that MRC does, very quantitative, um, uh, descriptive analysis at the start, but then it it, it gets more that information gets modeled and reused and, and becomes part of broader national projects to set disease priorities and, and look at um, prevention priorities at least and, and look at health status across the country. And therefore absolutely critical isn't it and I recognize the dilemmas that you've been uh, describing there across mortality data sets throughout the world I suspect. Yeah, I think so. I don't, I don't think we're alone in that. Uh, one of the advantages here, I think we have very good um, vital registration in terms of completeness. So it's really a case of changing the profile, which we're able to do with this type of research. And then we get very accurate figures. I think a lot of countries have, have uh, a kind of double jeopardy. They don't have the completeness in vital registration, nor the accuracy in, in terms of the cause profile. So that makes it even more difficult. So we at, we at least have a, a solution through this type of work. Um, incidentally, this what's happened in COVID um, has prompted us to repeat the study. Um, we're hoping to do so for 2020, just to see what the impact has been um, in, in terms of the, the effects of mobility and alcohol bans on, on the injury mortality profile. So that's work that's not yet funded, but we're very keen to, to um, pick up on in probably 2022 would probably be the right time for that research. The work at UCT, um, it began, I think it, I was seconded there in about 2006. Um, and the project, the aim of the project there was to look at not burden of disease calculation and estimation, but burden of disease reduction. So it was a project of the provincial government that was endorsed by the cabinet and it had a, um, a remit to look upstream at the causes of causes, which was very topical at the time with the Commission on Social Determinants and so on. Um, and I was asked to lead the injury prevention working group. Um, so I did the two major burdens in the Western Cape are road traffic injuries and, and violence. Um, and that, so that's been an ongoing area of work of mine for the last uh, 15 or so years. Um, but it's, it's everything from um, identifying areas amenable to, to prevention, to writing policies and looking at risk factors. Um, so one of, one of the things we developed was a violence prevention policy framework for the province, which is now being revisited and, and revamped. Um, the focus for the prevention work was really on, on the, uh, it was twofold. One was identifying a couple of quick wins that could make a difference in the short term um, while putting things in place that would have a longer sustained effect. Um, so on, on the quick win side of things, I was, I was became quite invested in doing um, work on alcohol-related injuries and, and gun violence, which are the two things that we thought would make a population-level difference um, in the short term. Because it's so important to get a few things right in order to you know, uh, open a window for policymakers to do things in the long run. Um, and unfortunately, most politicians think in five-year cycles. So they're, they're more interested in what's going to happen next and, and, and what needs to be in place for them to win the next election and that kind of thing. They don't often think long term. So the quick wins are very important because it, it buys a little bit of time for these longer term strategies to take effect. 
Um, so guns and alcohol have been a, a real focus of the prevention work and, and everything from costing studies uh, through to prevention programs, and they continue to be um, areas that I'm interested in. But more recently, I put together a project team to look at the impact of urban upgrading, which is, an, is a longer term cross cutter that seemed to be a very promising violence prevention strategy. Um, and there's a group that had had done extensive urban upgrading work in one of the poorer communities in Cape Town, a, a place called Kailicha, which is home to about 400,000 people and um, very marginalized community about 40 kilometers from Cape Town. Um, that part of the apartheid spatial um, planning legacy as well. So completely removed from services and infrastructure. Um, so we, we embarked on a, about a three-year project to look at the impact of that urban upgrading on, on um, experience, people's experiences of violence, um, uh, the effects on mental health and satisfaction with services and, and delivery. And I think we bit off a bit more than we could chew in terms of the amount of field work that we'd planned to do. Um, so after that grant was exhausted, we spent rather a lot of time compiling the data and writing it up. But most recently, we've we got a an adjusted analysis was published in Social Science and Medicine, which has which showed quite favorable results. And there's a significant association between living in close proximity to this intervention or within the proximity of the urban upgrading intervention and people's experience of, of safety and reduced interpersonal violence. I've outlined some of the work that I've been doing in terms of intervention research. Um, and, you know, for me, the, the, the missing link really is, is strong evidence that supports um, upstream interventions or ones that make a massive difference at the societal level. And there's a problem in a sense with the models that we use in public health. Everything pushes us downstream to focus on, on programmatic interventions. Those are the ones that are easier to control, the ones you can, you can throw a randomized controlled trial at and that kind of thing. Whereas the, the ones that we know implicitly are going to make a much bigger difference at a societal level are much harder to evaluate. Um, and we are skeptical about the evidence because of that as well, because we don't have a systematic review or a randomized control trial. So I, th I think developing the tools to show those effects more clearly is, is probably an, an overarching aspect of my work as well. Do you think the natural experiment around alcohol and COVID? Yeah, that's a, that's a classic example really, yeah. Richard, you started out by saying that the work you do in the ECT and the uh, MRC is quite different, but it sounds to me as if the 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 skills that you've acquired with the large data sets and the social institutions, the MRC, are exactly the same ones you'll be using in this particular project uh, for University of Cape Town. Yeah, I can't I can't disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. Before we go, is there one one thing that uh, you the burning question that you that you that puzzles you, or you would really like to have answered, or would like to work on next? Um, somebody gave you a grant. What's the what's the most interesting project that you would like to take on at this stage? Um, I put together a very complex grant a little while ago to try and draw all of this stuff together. Um, 
it was we got through the first stage um but it, it needs some ironing out and i'd like to revisit it really and that that is to threefold really the first first is to improve the reporting in, in each of the um, routine systems so i think criminal justice and in health um, there are a lot of areas of of underutilized potential i think in in, in both data streams um, as a particular work area i think i've i've outline some of the issues around the health data and what could be improved there. And I think the third major area of, of, of an overarching grant like that would be to look at the utility of blending or combining those routine um, data systems to, to understand more about risks and vulnerabilities and use them as, 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 as a monitoring mechanism. So that for me is a, is a big picture project that I'd like to be involved in in the long term. In the short term, I'm really fascinated as, as, as to what's happened with alcohol ban um, and COVID-19. And we've got quite strong evidence showing, showing the effects of the ban specifically, ignoring, well, not ignoring, but taking into account um, the changes in mobility. And for me, that's a critical policy moment. Um, we've just done a comparative risk assessment study where we measure the impact of, of um, alcohol-related diseases across the spectrum um, and, and how it relates to the consumption pattern. And I, th I think with this particular policy moment, there are a range of things that could be put in place to change the consumption pattern in South Africa. And I'd be interested in quantifying um, what the impact would be on in terms of health, either with predictive modeling or actually measuring it empirically after it's happened. Um, so those, and, and that one is going to be happening. I mean, that's definitely an area of work that I'll be engaging in the next few years. Certainly a program of work ahead there, isn't there? And it's uh, very interestingly combines policy and data and uh, and the sort of socio, the social medicine aspects of injury prevention. Well, thank you. That's been a, a, a fascinating and insightful um, walk through a number of the challenges and uh, a long period of of research in this space and a future ahead of you by the sound of the work program you've created for yourself. So we appreciate your time. Thank you, Richard. Thanks very much, Rod. We've been listening to a conversation with Professor Richard Matsopoulos from the South Africa Medical Research Council and the University of Cape Town. For anyone wishing to learn more about some of the topics we've covered, I would encourage you to visit the journal's website at injuryprevention.bmj.com. Remember, you can subscribe to the Injury Prevention Podcast in your favorite platform or app and have it automatically downloaded to your device each month.